Welcome everyone once again to Evidence for Faith, the show where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. And hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. Today, Mike, we have an exciting show. We're going to do part two of our interview with Dr. John Sanders. But before that, I just want to let people know that they can come celebrate Jesus Christ, the reason for the season, at Grace Community Church in Waterford this Christmas Eve, 7 and 11 p.m. services. You can go to placeforgrace.org. That's place the number four grace.org. So, Mike, this interview uh, is with this author of the book Genetic Entropy. So maybe we can start out by... Uh, just answering the question, what's entropy? What is he talking about? Okay, he's actually alluding to the uh, second law of thermodynamics, uh, which states that uh, uh, systems in general will tend to progress towards randomness or disorder. And specifically within his title, Genetic Entropy, uh, John Sanders, Dr. John Sanders, is alluding to the fact that the, the human genome, actually the genetic uh, information of all life, for that matter, is going towards a random state of disorder and decay. And because of that, he's predicting, or at least geneticists, geneticists in general are predicting with models, that within 20 to 30,000 years, um, all life forms as we know it are gonna be uh, defunct because the genetic information that they carry is getting worse and worse with each passing generation because of mutations. Which seems to go exactly in the opposite direction that the evolutionists tell us uh, it's going. Correct. I like to call that devolution. Things are devolving as right. opposed to not evolve or evolving. Things are devolving. And le let's remind the listeners about uh, Dr. Sanders' qualifications. Okay. Dr. Sanders uh, is a uh, genetics professor at uh, Cornell University and has been in that position for approximately 20 years. Uh, he was the inventor of the gene gun, which allows for uh, genetic uh, testing and or uh, variation uh, whenever a geneticist wants to reprogram uh, the gene of, w whether it's a plant or an animal, they can use a gene gun and insert basic uh, pairs in sequence uh, to uh, get the uh, uh, desired result, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So a tremendously qualified person and a, and a a uh, very humble man. So without any further ado, then we'll continue with part two of the interview with Dr. John Sanders. Uh, we have with us on the line Dr. John Sanford, professor of genetics from Cornell University, who is author of Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, which I assume your book, Dr. Sanford, is available uh, at any bookstore or Online. Well, I wish it was available at any bookstore. Right now, it's being distributed through Amazon.com and most most major creation ministries. Okay. And I believe that uh, Calvary Chapel bookstores carry it. But um, we do not yet have the, the attention of the greater public, so it's mostly found in Christian, Christian bookstores. Doctor, if I went to Borders and asked for them to special order this book, would it be available at that... Uh uh, yes, th that would that would happen. Okay, right. great. Well, in part one, uh, you uh, told us about the genetic entropy, the decay of the gene genetic information in all life forms that is occurring, and um, I'm just wondering, 
why then, if we, if we look back, say, a few thousand years, it seems that uh, human beings uh, died earlier than they do now. So if there's so much genetic decay going on in the human genome, why aren't we dying faster than we were, say, several thousand years ago? All right. Um, so let me address the issue of are, are human beings genetically degenerating in the present? Um, the, the, your question is an excellent one. That is, in the last few hundred years, human longevity has increased somewhat. And that increase in our life expectancy is not due to genetic change, but it's due to environmental change. Number one, uh, we have um, developed better nutrition. Number two, we have better control over disease. And, for, and through things like vaccination and antibiotics, we've been able to uh, significantly expand our, our, our life expectancy. But it's really important to understand that's not due to improved genetics, that's due to improved medicine and uh, modern agriculture. So uh, the question is then, apart from that, is there evidence that the human uh, species is degenerating? And if you actually talk to any human geneticist uh, and ask them, is the human race at present degenerating, they would all say, yes, definitely the human race is degenerating. They would say uh, there's a high mutation rate and there's not enough selection going on because we are um, a civilized, uh, uh, we're, because we're civilized people, we take care of the weak and the sick, and so uh, there's very little natural selection happening in the human population in the present. And they say there's certainly much too much mutation happening and much too little selection happening, and certainly we're degenerating. And um, one of the most, uh, probably the most, um, the most famous geneticist alive today would be Dr. James Crow, and in a recent paper he published, he said uh, that he has no doubt that we are inferior to the caveman genetically, and, and so he would say that we've been accumulating mutations, and we haven't been able to select away enough, and that we are in, inferior to uh, the primitive man. We are speaking with Dr. John Sanford, author of Genetic Entropy and a professor of genetics from Cornell. Uh, doctor, you mention in your book that uh, inbreeding um, amongst populations or human beings foreshadows uh, our future. Could you uh, explain and elaborate? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I'd be happy to explain what I mean by that. Well, let me just clarify. I'm actually a professor of horticultural sciences and my area is plant genetics. So um, just to clarify uh, my background and my title. Um, in terms of um, inbreeding, if you have um, closely related individuals who uh, intermate, let's say, first cousins, and that happens repeatedly, what happens is we see uh, a great increase in genetic disease, great increase in uh, birth defects within, within the babies that result, and we see uh, uh, rapid degeneration. We see uh, longer, uh, we see um, uh, lower IQ, lower vitality, lower um, 
basically much shorter uh, lifespan. So we see all this, all these undesirable effects, which basically represent genetic degeneration. And the, and and the question is, why is that happening? The reason that's happening is that many types of genetic damage need to be in two copies. You need to cut two doses of that mutation before it um, shows an effect. And one way to think of this is that um, every single uh, bit of genetic information we have is backed up. On the space shuttle, they have four different redundant computers acting as backups, one for the other. So that if one fails, or even two, or even three fail, um, there's still one functional computer on board. Well, genetically, we seem to be designed in a similar way. So that every bit of genetic information has at least one backup copy. So when we have a mutation, if we call it recessive, uh, so a recessive trait would be, let's say, blue eye color. And so if you have a brown-eyed person and a blue-eyed person and they have children, generally children are going to be brown-eyed because the brown trait is the functional trait and the dominant trait. Well, it turns out most mutations are recessive because they're basically a broken gene and the broken gene can be covered up by the functional gene. As long as you have still have one functional gene out of the two copies, you're okay. So as we, as we have inbreeding, where we close relatives start to intermate and have children, what we see is more and more of the children have two doses of the mutations. And those double dose mutations are highly expressed and show up as damage. So basically, uh, those genes take um, so how, do, how does that relate to the issue of where we're going in the future? Uh, genetic damage accumulating over time uh, would become more and more highly expressed because more and more copies of a given mutation are in the population. So uh, you will see the genetic damage expressed over time or more quickly if there's inbreeding. That's a, I'm sorry, that wasn't a very good explanation, but that's... No, that's I thought it was fun. Okay. The, um, the second part of the title of your book, uh, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, what's, what's the mystery of the genome? So the mystery of the genome is this. The genome is the most amazing information system uh, in the universe, probably. It's, um, it specifies human life. It is, it is unbelievably complex, and it is... Um, has a degree of what's called energy, uh, not energy, of information density, which is absolutely astounding. Um, the human genome is uh, a million, million fold more in, uh, information dense than a DVD. So it's a, you know, we, we, we think our computer technology is pretty impressive, but it's nothing compared to the human genome. There's so much information packed into a single nucleus of a single cell. Uh, that it's um, truly mind-blowing, and each um, each bit of information, there's, there's three billion bits of information in our genome, every one of them has to have just the right letter in just the right spot. That's the specificity of the information. And um, 
So it's something humans couldn't design. We couldn't even hope to design the human genome. Not, not now, not in a hundred years. And so the mystery of the genome is where did it come from? And the common answer, the, the, the politically correct answer is it happened by random misspellings within the text and uh, selection, natural selection. And um, we can show beyond any reasonable doubt that that is not viable. That mechanism cannot create a genome or even preserve a genome. Genomes will degenerate due to mutation and selection cannot stop that. And uh, so the mystery is where did it come from? And I believe, I believe the most reasonable answer is that it was designed. Along those questions, Doctor, um, I guess the, it's a multi-part question, but I'll throw it at you. And the question is this, have evolutionists ever been able to explain sexual reproduction in highly complex animals? That's number one. And also, um, my take on this, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what your take on this is too, my, my uh, reading of the Bible, specifically Genesis chapter 2, 21 and 22, uh, where God puts Adam into a deep sleep and he takes a rib from Adam's side, he closes his side, and basically, Eve is cloned from that information. Clearly, the Hebrew word, the operative word there for flesh, involves not only bone and flesh, but also bone marrow. And, of course, we know that stem cells are in the bone marrow. Mm -hmm. um, my, my take on this is that God gave us just a little bit of information in those two lines to suggest to us that all of the essential genetic information is there in Adam's rib, specifically uh, stem cells. And uh, he took all of that information necessary, except for the Y chromosome from Adam, and uh, put it all together to make a sexually compatible and genetically matched mate for Adam, capable of sexual reproduction with an exact copy of the chromosomes that were necessary to propagate that specific human race. Uh, is this plausible from a genetics perspective? Um, from a genetics perspective, I believe it's plausible, but I don't think it's compelling. I, I, um, from a biblical view, uh, we know that God created Adam's genome uh, in, uniquely and miraculously. And so uh, even as he extracted Eve from the body of Adam, um, it wasn't necessarily a cloning experiment. He could have, in fact, uh, given Eve, by miraculous creation, her own genome as well. So. Um, I think genetically we don't know um, if there were uh, two completely different genotypes or, or if Eve was, in fact, uh, except for the Y chromosome, a clone of Adam. Uh, I think that it is intriguing that, uh, that it sounds like an experiment that could be done today, uh, intriguing and, I guess, disturbing. But, um, but I'm not convinced that Eve was a clone. I do believe that uh, they're of the same flesh but not necessarily with identical genomes. Now, you also mentioned in your book that uh, DNA is multi-encoded. Um, could you explain a little bit about that, that what it means, and, and what it means from uh, the possibility of uh, evolution having done anything like this? Okay. Uh, sometimes if we look at a word puzzle, you can see that the same letter can, have, uh, can be part of several different words, or you can actually have a single word or a single sentence that uh, has a, the same or different message read backwards, let's say. So the word um, 
uh, live, for example, if you uh, spell it backwards, is evil. So uh, the word live and evil are um, it's a multi-code. There's two different words uh, in the same word, two different meanings in the same word. Um, there are um, many word puzzles like that. And these type of word puzzles where you have multiple um, meanings uh, are really constrain your ability to design information. Try to imagine, for example, writing a sentence, let's say a, a complex sentence, which um, read backwards would have a completely different but equally meaningful uh, message. That, that would be very difficult, wouldn't it? So um, it turns out that as we look at the human genome, we find out that that, that type of um, data compression or that type of um, multiple code use is extensive. And so again, uh, the, the, the Phase two of the Genome Project, which was published um, two summers ago, called the ENCODE Project, found that um, polyfunctional DNA, or DNA with multiple messages in the same sequence, is extensive throughout the human genome. There are numerous uh, genes that are read both ways, forwards and backwards, and that there is um, many sequences that have, uh, on one level, give one type of information, but read in a slightly different way, convey a very different but equally vital message. So it's like, um, it's not just like the human genome is a textbook. It, it is, in a sense, a textbook specifying how to, uh, how to make uh, a human cell. But more than that, it's an incredibly uh, elaborate puzzle with multiple layers of meaning and uh, overlapping uh, languages. And so it's a it's um, truly delightfully complex, something we'll probably never fully uh, unravel. Along those lines, uh, Dr. Sanford, uh, you speak extensively about the integrated complexity in your book. Can you explain that to uh, the average reader? So um, when you look at when you look for design, um, especially good design, um, you look for something that has unity, that something that holds together. Um, if you have something that's jury-built, poorly designed, but still designed, or something that came together by accident, you have lots of uh, loose ends and um, and jagged edges. Basically, uh, when we look at living systems, there one of the things that we immediately recognize is that they are beautifully integrated uh, in the same way that if you look at a jet airplane, uh, you don't say, oh, look at those thousands of metal pieces. You say, look at that single, amazingly unified and functional uh, unit, which has the unique ability to fly. Uh, you, you don't see lots of part, bits and pieces. You see the whole entity, and it has a its own perfect profile that we call beauty. Beauty is, beauty is basically integrated complexity, and it reflects uh, the highest level of design. And uh, all of life, especially human life, uh, reflects integrated complexity. And 
So when we admire beauty, of, a, of a, whether it's the beauty of a person or the beauty of a rose, what we're seeing is, what we're really admiring is the masterful artistry of the designer and the fact that uh, when he makes things, they are beautifully integrated, every piece fitting together uh, just perfectly to create a, an integrated unit. And that's, and that's, that's to me, the signature of, of design. Okay. Well, in this view, then, if we now take this new information about the decay of the genome and we think about life starting out in a pristine state and then decaying slowly over thousands and thousands of years, how do we fit in the issue of uh, new species? Um, you know, do you believe that there have not been any new species, or how does new speciation fit into this view of this kind of decline of, of genetic information? Right. So as we look around us today, we see lots of endangered species. So we see lots of species that are disappearing or that are in danger of disappearing. As we look at the historical record, we see that many life forms that existed in the past are no longer with us. So extinction seems to me is uh, very clear, uh, and it's been going on for a long time, and it seems to be an integral part of life, not so much uh, because of the activities of man. And so um, certainly we don't, you know, we see a great deal of degeneration in the world around us. Do we see new life forms springing from old life forms? I don't believe we do, but we do see something which I call species fragmentation. So if you have um, a given, uh, let's say you have a, an animal, let's say a rabbit, and, um, and if you put that rabbit in the desert, it will, um, it will over time experience natural selection, and because the rabbit population does have natural variation in it, you will find that you have a rabbit that's more better adapted to a desert environment. Uh, at the same time, you've taken uh, the same population of rabbits and moved them to the Arctic, to Alaska, let's say. Uh, over time, you will see that those rabbits will develop heavier fur, and perhaps a mutation to white fur would be advantageous. Uh, and so you will see uh, species adapting. Adaptation is very real. It has it happens to a limited extent. You don't you don't see rabbits turning into uh, coyotes, but you do see rabbits changing into slightly different types of rabbits. So that is technically speciation, and you can get different types of rabbits. And so you're getting new species, and they're arising through natural selection, but um, but they're still rabbits. So you still, you're not seeing what's called macroevolution. You're seeing what's called adaptation, which is sometimes called microevolution. Dr. Sanford, uh, one final question, and we have uh, two minutes. And what I would like you to do, if you can, uh, in summary, then, uh, with genetic entropy and the decline in the information and, and uh, mutation rates and so forth, what is the only hope for mankind? Well, in this day and age, everyone thinks that our greatest hope is technology and maybe political reform. But neither technology nor political reform can stop 
the aging process that we experience personally, nor can it stop the degeneration that we see operational in all living systems. And so um, basically we have to understand that this life that we live is a, is a, a temporary life. It's a, it's a passing phase. And that uh, our true hope is in, uh, is in the new life that comes through Christ and through the new heaven and earth that God will create. But in that, we have life that's uh, incorruptible and eternal. And so we can return to a state of perfection, not by going forward, but by looking, not by looking backwards, excuse me, but by looking forward. Dr. Sanford, we uh, want to thank you uh, for being part uh, of our show um, and uh, look forward to actually uh, speaking with you sometime again in the future. So I wanted to thank you uh, very much for your time. Thank you very much, Keith. Thanks for, thank you for having me. Well, that was a terrific interview. I really enjoyed that. How about you, Mike? I'm very, very impressed by what he has to say. But even more than that, Keith, if you read the book, and I'm encouraging our listeners to pick that book up, either for yourself or somebody that you love that uh, may be of a, a scientific background or a highly mm -hmm. technical background who is either in a pre-belief stage or, or a non-belief stage, I think that that's a great stocking stuffer. You can get it at Amazon.com. You can order it at Borders. Uh, John Sanford, Genetic Entropy. It was written in 2005. It's current. Uh, the guy is a uh, an expert. Uh, he understands the uh, uh, both sides of the coin when it comes to uh, the genetics and the complex information that it conveys for all living things. Right. Now, uh, I just want to review a couple of the points that he mentioned because I think they're so important. He talked about the polyfunctional nature of DNA. And this is really, you know, you and I, when we went to high school and college and learned about DNA, we did not get taught this because it wasn't known. It was thought that the DNA was just simply read like you would read uh, sentences on a page of paper and just letter by letter, that's how it was read. But in actuality, the information is multi-encoded. So now he just mentioned the simple way of reading it forward and then backwards. So you read it one way, it says something, and you read it backwards, it says a completely different meaningful message. But uh, in his book, he actually explains that it's more than just encoded twice, that there are very many regions of the DNA that are polyfunctional, um, multi-encoded up to, there's actually a place in the genome that they've discovered that is encoded up to 13 times. So there are 13 different messages. Now, so you read it forwards, backwards, but then you also read it in sections. So the DNA, the machinery that reads the DNA will actually read parts and take parts out of the code. So it'd be like you reading the newspaper and uh, you get the morning's information about politics if you read it straight through. If you read it backwards, you get today's entertainment news. Then if you read it forwards, but you skip every third word, you get the weather. And then if you read it backwards and skip every second word, you get uh, information on what's going on uh, in uh, Africa. So uh, just an amazingly complex coding system that could not possibly be formed without intelligence. And one of the one of the strong points that he made is that if you change one base pair, that is, let's say, two letters in that script, 
it totally, totally destroys the information content that was originally meant for the cell. The point being is that mutations are deleterious, and they are accumulating in our genome uh, generation after generation after generation, up to 100 mutations per generation. Right. The opposite of evolution. It's actually devolving. And he talked about uh, that there is the possibility of new species coming, gave the example of rabbits uh, getting heavier fur as they adapt to a colder climate. And what he didn't mention in the interview, but he does say in his book, is that that information doesn't come from the mutations. It comes from the genetic encoding already there. So there's the rabbit has more information than it takes to just make a single rabbit. The rabbit has information that can help you with uh, to make more than one type of rabbit. And we don't want people to forget that they can come celebrate Jesus Christ, the reason for the season, at Grace Community Church in Waterford this Christmas Eve, 7 and 11 p.m. Uh, go to placeforgrace.org for more information. Place the number four grace.org. So in closing, I would encourage every one of you to pick up John Sanford's book, Genetic Entropy. It is an easy read. He writes it in a uh, format that you can understand if you uh, are a high school graduate and you understand uh, basic blue and brown eyes and Mendelian genetics, you'll be able to read his book and follow it along. And uh, this this book is impactful, folks. Uh, it's a must read. Yep. And don't forget the uh, best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. He parks a Chevy, needs sleep, heart is heavy. He's thought about repenting already. Sun is setting, this church is not having service. It looks almost dead as he drops by. But to keep on the electric, what a ghost town. He knelt down.